Good morning. I want to welcome you to Redeemer Baptist Church. For those of you who have not had a chance to meet, my name is Jason, and I serve as the worship arts director now and an elder in training. Today we're going to continue on our study that we've, about James that we've titled, Get Wise. Remember last week, we looked at James from about a 10,000-foot overview. Recall that the book of James is written to God's people who are living in a broken reality. God's people who are gifted with a profound hope in and through God's wisdom, and God's people who are called to receive God's wisdom for life. Now, the book of James is classified as a general epistle because it's not written to any particular person. The intended audience is the 12 tribes in the dispersion. We also learned last week that James was the half-brother of Jesus. He encountered the risen Jesus, and he led the Jerusalem church. He's not to be confused with James, whose brother was John, whose father was Zebedee. So recall as well that we saw an overarching theme in this book, specifically that Christ is our wisdom, which we see referenced throughout Scripture. And and it's this idea that enables us to see that James, in his opening lines, challenges the standards of the world in terms of wisdom. As we'll see later, that worldly wisdom has, sees, sees no value in suffering. It says that pain should be avoided at all costs, and only pleasure brings happiness. But by contrast to Christians, even trials are joy. Why? Because they lead us to maturity in Christ. As Christians, we get to value and judge quite differently what the world, as the world does. To us, the highest value is not on freedom from pain, but faith to persevere. Oh, that's a hard statement because, again, we want to not suffer. We want to be happy. We want things to be good. But we know that suffering, even though it's bad, can be turned by God into pure joy. It's godly wisdom that allows us to do that. Because wisdom itself can be defined as the capacity of judging rightly in matters relating to life and conduct. But godly wisdom can be defined as the ability to see life from God's perspective and act accordingly in matters relating to life and conduct. Okay, well, with that in mind, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of James which is roughly about three-fourths of the way through the New Testament. Or you can turn in your scripture journals to page 6. Also, get ready to turn to page 14, because we're going to read a few verses from James 1, and then we're going to hop to James 3. You can also follow along using the events function in the YouVersion Bible app. Just click on the app and click on the more and then events. Or you can follow along on the screen. So we're going to be reading James 1, starting in verse If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double, 
he's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And then turning to James 3.13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast or be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is God's holy and inerrant word, and may he add his blessing to its reading and to our study. So this morning we're going to see that Christ is our wisdom, which is the core of this passage. Because if Christ truly is our wisdom, it changes our reality. If Christ is our wisdom, it should change how we act. It should also change how we live. And because Christ is our wisdom, we should seek God first in all circumstances. So the first thing we need to understand again is that Christ is our wisdom, which we see in James. We also see in Colossians. As Colossians 2 says, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Or in 1 Corinthians 1, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So because Christ is our wisdom, it changes our reality. Or to put it another way, if Christ truly is our wisdom, our reality should be changed. It should be different. Because reality looks different to those who don't follow Christ. Again, as we see in 1 Corinthians 1, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. <clears throat> While I was studying for this, uh, this passage, this message, I looked up multiple translations of this verse, all of which are pretty much in agreement that it says Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. I could end my sermon right here. But this brings us to the point that we should seek God, who is our wisdom, by asking for wisdom when our faith is tested. Because as Jesus said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And as we saw last week in James 1, 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. But the thing is, we, we don't want to be joyful when we're facing trials. We don't want to be joyful when we're going through suffering. We want to have a pity party. Oh, come join me in my pity party because I'm facing this and this and this and this and this. No. We want to tell people, hey, I went to Starbucks and got the wrong drink. Come join me at my pity party. No, that's not a trial. That is not a trial. 
as Paul writes in the book of Romans, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The book of Romans and I are becoming very, very close because I'm writing a research paper for one of my classes on some of the theological points, which is a very, very, very weighty book theologically. But even though I'm doing that, it's not suffering. I'm not suffering having to write a research paper on Romans. I'm enjoying it. I enjoy enjoying learning more and more about God because God gives us wisdom if we ask. As we learned last week, because he wants us to pursue wisdom. As it says in our passage, if any of you lacks wisdom, what do we do? Let him ask God. It should be said, as one of the commentary writers puts it, no matter how much wisdom a person has, they can always use more. I mean, look at the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon. He prayed for wisdom. He was given wisdom to enact justice. Think about the story, which I'm not going to read, but I have in your notes in 1 Kings 3, where he prays for wisdom and has to deal with the two women who have babies, one of which killed her baby in the middle of the night by rolling over on her, on him, <clears throat> and the other baby was then taken by that woman. Solomon's wisdom was to cut the baby in half and give half to each woman. The mom whose child it actually was said, no, give it to the other one. The other one was like, go ahead, cut it. It's fine, fine with me. <clears throat> it was God's wisdom that allowed Solomon to make this wise choice. Though it should be said that even though Solomon was a wise man, he probably could have used more as we know that he had many, many, many foreign wives and ended up descending into idolatry. <clears throat> As Ecclesiastes 2, in Ecclesiastes 2, we're reminded of the fact that there is more to gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more to gain in light than in darkness. Because the wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. wisdom is an important word that we see throughout Scripture, and it means a lot more than intellectual knowledge. Wisdom is less knowing that than knowing how. It also implies a skill in living that is passed down from parent to child as and has the ultimate source of God. In his book, Dangerous Calling, Paul David Tripp writes, knowledge is an exercise of your brain. Wisdom is the commitment of your heart that leads to the transformation of your life. As he states further, the purpose of the Word of God is not theological information, but heart and life transformation. Heart and life transformation is the ultimate goal of our gospel and life groups. The reason we go through those questions is to help us effectively and consistently apply God's word to our life. It's not just to get through the questions. Look at Proverbs 2, 
It says, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. And then a verse that we saw last week in Proverbs 4. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. So ultimately, we see that God gives wisdom generously, which we see in verse 5. God, who gives generously to all. Recall last week when we saw that we can live a victorious life through divine wisdom because wisdom is the how of a joy-filled, victorious life. And God alone is the one who gives us this life-transforming wisdom. So the life-transforming wisdom of God is something that he has communicated to us. As it says in James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Good gifts are wisdom, spouses, children, even the mechanical heart valve that I have that I've been the proud owner of since last September. It's a good gift because without it, I probably wouldn't be standing in front of you today. Perfect gifts that he's given are his wisdom, his love, his grace, his mercy. All of these perfect gifts were displayed in and through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And Paul references, follow God's example in Ephesians. Basically, the ways that we can be and ought to be like God. Remember, James 1.17 was used last week to uh, illustrate a point by Pastor Chris that God is not unstable. I mean, if God was unstable, why would there be so many references to him being the rock? In, old past, in the Old Testament passages or even in the Sermon on the Mount, it's the wisdom of that, that God gives us that allows us to believe that he is not unstable. As we read in Proverbs 28, <clears throat> evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. Or as Eugene Peterson writes in the message, same verse, justice makes no sense to the evil-minded. Those who seek God know it inside and out. So God also gives wisdom without reproach. God who gives generously to all without reproach, as we see in our passage. And the word reproach here, anedizo, means without blame or without hesitation or with no condition attached. It's good to know that God gives wisdom without any conditions attached to it. And he does it generously. Which leads us to our next point, which is because Christ is our wisdom, we should act differently. As Colossians 4 says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Ah, oh, this verse is so convicting because I know my speech isn't always gracious. And I know that I'm not just seasoned with salt at times. I'm, I can be salty, honestly. My speech is not good at times. 
There is a huge, huge, huge difference between a teaspoon and a tablespoon. We should act differently by asking God for wisdom. As it says in verse 6 in our passage, and using the Christian Standard Bible, but let him ask in faith without doubting. For the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Which we're going to unpack this verse a little further uh, in, in the next section. But I wanted to give you the context of it. As Matthew 7 also reminds us that ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. So ask for wisdom and it will be given to you. Seek wisdom and you will find it. This is because, remember, God gives wisdom generously and without reproach. So yes, we ask for God to give us wisdom, and we do it in faith. As the first part of verse 6 says, let him ask in faith. This is also illustrated in Mark 11, which says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer... Believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. It's important to know that I'm not advocating the name it and claim it theology of the prosperity gospel here. I'm simply saying that as we learned from the context of this verse, where the disciples learned the lesson about the withering fig tree, if we ask God in faith and believe we have it, we will have God's wisdom. Because asking for wisdom and faith is a lesson on what we learned earlier in the kids' message, trusting God. As, as the words of the great hymn, Be Thou My Vision, say, Be Thou my wisdom, be Thou my true word, I ever with Thee, and Thou with me, Lord. That phrase is all about trusting God. It's asking for God to be our wisdom, to be our true word. And if you go on further in that stanza, it talks about the idea of adoption, how we've been adopted into the family of God because of what Christ has done for us. Remember, we, we started talking about this, how, how wisdom and faith work well with the idea of trust. As Proverbs 3, 5 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. Or as the New Revised Standard Version puts it, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own insight. Which I'm sure some of you are looking at me like, are you going to say verse 6? Are you going to complete the phrase? Well, let's go ahead. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. If we ask God for wisdom, if we trust that God will give us wisdom, he will direct our path. So we are supposed to ask God for wisdom in faith and with no doubt. As it says in like the middle portion of verse 6, let him ask for faith, faith with no doubting. Notice the contrast, the compare and contrast right there of, of in faith, but with no doubting. Because Why? Because doubting is the opposite of faith. 
Again, from Jesus' teaching, we see in Matthew 17, he said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move here from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Can you imagine telling a mountain to move and seeing it move? As it says again in, uh, in Matthew 21 as well, <clears throat> and Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and it will happen. It's important for us to understand that faith here is not just a general term for Christian belief. It refers to more certainty that our request will be fulfilled. Because we believe and have the certainty and that we know that God is in control. I mean, when I went in for surgery, I knew there was going to be two possible outcomes. One, surgery was going to go bad. I was going to go be with Jesus. Two, surgery was going to be good. I'm still with Jesus. I get to enjoy my spending time with my wife and watching my babies grow up, which... That little dude turned three this last week. It's amazing. Same thing happened with Ken Halterman. He knew going in that either way, God was going to get the glory. I knew coming out of surgery that God wasn't through with me yet. I want to highlight the end of this verse with no doubt. Why, why is that important for us to not doubt? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because if we doubt, we lack faith. As, as the writer of Hebrews <clears throat> reminds us, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. If we doubt... We are like storms at sea. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. So the idea of driven and tossed by the wind or blown by the sea is a common, common metaphor in ancient literature. And it's, a lot of times it's used for indecisiveness. If we doubt, we won't receive anything from the Lord. Look at verse 7. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. And if we doubt, we are double-minded and unstable. Look at verse 8. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So someone who is double-minded means that they have faith to ask for wisdom, but not enough that they're confident that they're going to receive it. It's important to know, too, I, I found it interesting that this is the only place where this word is used is in the book of James. Wisdom is definitely a gift from God needed by Christians throughout the ages. It is also really important for us and that we know that it's really needed for us right now because there are forces of secularization and worldliness that threaten the church. Wisdom also helps us to remember the good news that Christ defeated sin and death. As we sang in that song, and there he stands in victory since curse has lost its grip on me. 
Wisdom also helps us to apply God's word when we're tempted to sin or have unbelief or, or want to li- listen to one of the empty philosophies or values of this world. So we should not only act differently because Christ is our wisdom, we should live differently. As the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And as Paul also writes in Colossians 3, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things of this earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We should live differently by asking God to remove any earthly wisdom from below. As Paul writes in Ephesians 5, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time because the days are evil. Why is it important for us to ask God to remove earthly wisdom? Because earthly wisdom is worldly and focused solely on this life. It also contains unholy characteristics, which we'll see in a few weeks when we study James 2, that there is a very similar language used in that passage and in our passage. So the first unholy characteristic that is listed is jealousy and selfish ambitions. As it says in verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambitions in your heart, and these characteristics unfortunately, are often accomplished at the expense of other people. The second one is boastfulness and deceitfulness. Do not boast and be false to the truth. Jealousy, selfish ambitions, boastfulness, deceitfulness are all a contrast to what we're going to see in the next section. But earthly wisdom is also unspiritual and demonic. As it says in verse 15, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic. This wisdom is in direct opposition to God. But if that weren't enough, earthly wisdom also brings out disorder and vile practices. Look at verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Think about the wars or conflicts or the acts of genocide that have happened throughout history. Most of those events have happened and have brought out vile practices. Or think about how many people terminate their pregnancy because it will interfere with school or their career. That brings out a really vile practice. It's important to know, too, that earthly wisdom is also a work of the flesh. As 
the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 5, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and other things like these. I warn you, as I have warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, if Christ is truly our wisdom, it allows us to not only act differently, but live differently. We should also seek God first in all circumstances. As Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So we seek God first by asking him to grant us heavenly wisdom from above. As it says in 1 Chronicles, seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Let me read that again. Seek the Lord and what? His strength and what? His presence continually. And then as we, uh, as we <clears throat> see similar language discussed in Colossians 3, we see this in 1 Chronicles 22. Now set your mind and heart to seek the Lord your God. As we have already looked at Hebrews 11.6, I hear it is again. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So it is the wisdom that we ask from God in faith with no doubt that allows us to truly draw near to God and believe that he exists and have the desire to seek him. Why? Because heavenly wisdom is Christ and is from Christ. As we see in Romans 16, <clears throat> Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed <clears throat> and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. So this is the end of the book of Romans. But we need to ask, what exactly is the mystery here? Well, the good news, the mystery is that the good news is that God lived the perfect life that we couldn't live through Jesus. We know that Jesus was sent by God the Father to live that life. He was also sent to die the atoning death. He was the perfect substitute for our sins. He took all of God's wrath upon himself so that we could live. As the great hymn, it is well says, Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. And then this next part of that song really spoke to me this week. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. 
Praise the Lord, O my soul. That just speaks to me because my sin, past, present, future, has already been paid for by Christ. This is true for all of us who believe in Jesus. Heavenly wisdom, which we see in our passage, is the opposite of worldly wisdom, is it shows meekness. How how do we know this? Because Christ didn't come as the dominant king, which is why the Jewish leaders rejected him. They thought he was going to be this dominant king who would take care of the issue they had with Rome. No, Christ came to serve, not be served, which we see in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in meekness of wisdom. So when I took Greek, uh, I learned the idea that a lot of times the authors would emphasize certain phrases by having repeated words. It's in, I think it's important for us to know that wisdom and understanding are very synonymous with each other. And, and remember, as we discussed in a previous section, that meekness is the contrast to jealousy, to selfish ambitions, to boastfulness, to deceitfulness. Again, another hymn that spoke to me this week, you can tell I'm a worship guy, I guess, uh, is from Stuart Townend, one of the great modern hymn writers. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death, and his resurrection. Because as the song goes on to say, why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart, all my mechanical heart. His wounds have paid my my ransom. It's the wisdom of God that allows us to truly believe this, to truly believe that Christ paid our ransom. So heavenly wisdom is not only from Christ, is is not only Christ, but not only from Christ and shows meekness, but it also contains so many godly characteristics. Which, think about earlier how we read Galatians 5, 19 through 21 talking about the works of the flesh. Think about the contrast now as we go through the next couple of verses. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So as I was looking at this, this passage, I find it interesting that the word fruit Karpos in Greek is in a singular form. It doesn't say, but the fruits of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit. I look at it like, you know, if the fruit of the Spirit is A through I of these characteristics, all make up the fruit. The first godly characteristic we see in our passage is purity. But the wisdom from above is first pure, as it says in verse 17. Notice he says wisdom from above. It's to call our attention to the fact that it's different than earthly wisdom. 
Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There's more verses listed there that we don't have time to unpack. The next characteristic is peace, or in this case, peaceable. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, which we also see in Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is peace. And the next characteristic is gentleness. Again, look at verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle. Which we also see in Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. And as First Peter writes, <clears throat> put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Putting away all of these things are how we begin to become gentle. The next characteristic we see is open to reason. But again, here it is again in verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure and peaceable, gentle, open to reason. By the time we get done with this passage, you're going to know verse 17 by heart. Or open to reason can be put another way, by not insisting on its own way. Which the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13 as he talks about love, how love doesn't insist on its own way. Wisdom can be added there too. If you are a wise person, you don't insist on your own way. Which, trust me, is hard when you have a three-year-old and a one-year-old. The next characteristic is full of mercy and good fruits. Again, verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. As Jesus says in Luke 6, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. The last characteristic we see is impartiality and sincerity. Again, verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. And then as the Apostle Paul writes to his protege Timothy, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. I'm going to read that again. The aim of our charge is that love is love issues that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. All of these characteristics, purity, peace, gentleness, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartiality and sincerity, are all built upon each other which are all part of the idea of having wisdom and faith, which ultimately are the idea of us trusting in God. Heavenly wisdom also allows for a harvest in righteousness. Again, there are more more passages listed on your outline that we don't have time to unpack. But look at verse 18. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And then look at Proverbs 11, according to the New International Version. 
The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and the one who is wise saves lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that in your divine wisdom that you would save us, you would indwell us, you would sanctify us, you would free us, and you would redeem us. We ask, God, that you would enable us to believe that Christ is our wisdom. We ask that knowing and believing that would cause us to act and live differently and to cause us to seek you first in all circumstances. We thank you, Jesus, that you are a Savior who can empathize with us as you have faced the same and even greater temptations and trials that we have faced or will face. God, we ask that you would remove any worldly wisdom and grant us heavenly wisdom. I pray that you would enable us to be pure, peaceful, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. We ask all of this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.